And it's a historical story as well as a religious story. And as a life story, it shows the struggles, the decisions, the joys and the sorrows, the homes and the workplaces of everyday life that we all experience. As a love story, it's not like many. And Ruth is rightly called, someone called this story, the Cinderella, Ruth being the Cinderella of the scriptures. It's a decent love story because it shows the important high moral standards and values that are needed in romance and marriage. As a historical story, it relates some you know, significant traditions and customs in areas like welfare, business, government, and marriages that were practiced in the East thousands of years ago. As a religious story, which is the most important story, it repeatedly shows the great truths of redemption, of God's saving grace. It's an important part of the plan of redemption because it helped to fulfill the ancestry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The son born to Ruth as a result of the romance in the story was in the lineage of Jesus, which makes Ruth an ancestress of Jesus. All the fiction stories ever written can't do better than the true story, which lifts this widow, this widow woman, out of paganism and poverty to love, marriage, riches, and the great honor of motherhood in the line of Jesus. The book of Ruth is not very big, four chapters. It's not an extensive study on Ruth because, as we know, God's word is infinite. Even in the book of Ruth, because it being the infinite word of God, we can never learn all that God has, has meant it to be or, or, or for us to figure out you know, what God has said. But we can honor and exalt the Lord Jesus and we can give helpful information, instruction and inspiration for those who read it as they search the scriptures to learn the great truths that are in them. The setting of the story of Ruth is ruin. It's one of devastation. And it was because of ruin that Ruth, a Moabitess, you know, that led her to become part of a Jewish family that eventually resulted in her becoming the ancestor, or I should say the ancestress of Jesus. And this ruin that she experienced, it wasn't a small thing. It was a great ruin to her. It was a devastating thing to her. And it was described as going from fullness to emptiness here in chapter 1, verse 21. But emphasis wasn't the end of the story. I'm sorry, emptiness wasn't the end of the story in this little book. Before the book ends, God's grace caused the emptiness to be replaced by the fullness of the blessing of a son for Ruth. And this brought life where death had once reigned, and it filled hearts with joy, rejoicing and promise that had been emptied of joy and hope. God gave them, as, I, as Isaiah said, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And it's a great picture of salvation. Because where sin had ruined, because where sin had ruined, a son, who being in the line of Christ, pictures the work of Christ here, came and brought life and joy and blessing. And Christ the Son is the rescuer of the ruined. He rescues 
those who are ruined, those who are devastated. So our story starts with a famine. And it was a significant part of the ruin that gives the background of the story of Ruth. The famine is one of 13 famines that we find recorded in the Bible. The first famine was the one that Abraham experienced after moving to Canaan back in Genesis chapter 12. Let's begin now with verse 1, chapter 1 of Ruth. And it reads, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The time of the famine was a special time in Israel's history. It says here that it was in the days when the judges ruled. It was the time between <clears throat> the conquering of the land by Joshua and the rule of the kings over the land. And this period of the judges was about 450 years. Thirteen judges ruled in all. The first one was Othniel, and the last was Samuel. And the period of the judges was a time of moral <clears throat> and theological breakdown. Eight times in the book of Judges, we read the well-known words that says, Israel did evil. So it wasn't a good time when the story of Ruth took place. But mentioning this period of time when the famine came helps to explain why the famine came. It came because of divine judgment on the people of their sin. And, you know, I've mentioned this before, that, that when you think of a famine, you think, well, you know, just uh, bad economy, bad time, bad whatever. It, 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 it's a judgment of God. But people don't like to hear that. It's a judgment of God. And it came upon the people, his people, because of their sin. One of God's judgments for the sin what was a famine. So the famine is a powerful sign of shameless sin and the displeasures of God. With all of the evil that was going on during the time of the judges, there was, there was plenty of reason for God to bring a famine on the land. And, and the thing that, the fact that, that there weren't more recorded famines in the land than this one during the time of the judges is a testimony to God's grace. I mean, when you read all that took place in the scriptures about God's people, you would have think there would have been a famine, you know, every other week. But uh, only 13 are recorded. Again, a testimony to God's grace. It's not a testimony to the goodness of the people. Israel deserved many more famines than what they experienced. And verse 1 says, the famine was in the land. And that place, speaking of in the land, was Bethlehem, of Judah. In verse 2, Ephrath, you know, the Ephrathites. It's, it's from an old uh, name for Bethlehem. Now our verse has a hyphen between the two names depending on the version of the Bible that you, that you have. Like I said, it has a hyphen between the two names, Bethlehem, Judah, like we do with our city and states. Judah in our verse distinguishes this Bethlehem from the Bethlehem that's located in the territory of Zebulon. The Bethlehem in Judah was located about six miles or so south of Jerusalem. The town, as we know, is very famous today because David and Jesus were born there in this particular Bethlehem. But in our story, neither David nor Jesus had been born in Bethlehem yet. But both are in view, still future, because the son born to Ruth at the end of the story of the book, in the book is in the direct family line of both David and Jesus 
And that's the thing that makes this book so significant. So a famine in Bethlehem. You know, you think of it, when you realize what the name Bethlehem is, a famine in Bethlehem is kind of a contradiction. Because the Hebrew for Bethlehem means house of bread. So this was a very appropriate name for the nature of the area where Bethlehem was located because it was very fertile. But even though it was a fertile land, there was a famine in the area. So the contradiction of the situation was a result of sin, as we mentioned earlier. And this is true in many lives also. You know, people call themselves Christians, and yet they live in contradiction to their name where they have many spiritual advantages. And yet there is a spiritual famine in their lives. They don't show any holy fruit. And like Bethlehem, the reason for the inconsistency between what they say and what they do is because of sin. Sin always changes fruitfulness to a barrenness, to famine. Verse 1 says, notice, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. Now, for the people that's, again, in the land, for them to move to Moab for help, to receive relief from the famine, meant that Moab, though it was close to Bethlehem, hadn't been affected by the famine. They were protected by God to the effects of the famine. And some might wonder why Moab, which was an unholy nation, was kind of immune to the famine, but not Israel. Well, the answer is God. God was chasing Israel because they were his people. Moab is going to be dealt with in God's time. But they will be dealt with under different situ a different situation, under different principles. Their judgment of Moab, the judgment of Moab, their judgment won't be made better but destructive. Chastisement is only for God's people. If you're a child of God, you can expect chastisement because you, you, who, do you, who do you chastise? Who do you discipline? Your children only. Not the neighbors, though you might want to. But uh, we discipline our children only because they're our children. God chastises only his children. And if we're not being chastised by God, I might wonder, oh, I wonder if I'm his child. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says this, God is dealing with you as sons, with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not train and correct and discipline? Now, if you are exempt from correction and left without discipline, in which all of God's children share, then you are illegitimate offspring and not true sons at all. I'm reading that from the Amplified Version. The famine, the, the famine of food here, this famine was great. It was big. It wasn't the worst part of the devastation that's recorded here. And even an even worse part of the devastation that's recorded here, which gives the setting for the story of Ruth, were the failures in the move that Elimelech made with his family from Bethlehem to Moab. And in also Elimelech's sons marrying Moabite women. Those were two of the biggest failures in the part of the story of Ruth here. A famine in morals is a lot worse than a famine in material things. A famine of food for the soul is a lot more harmful than a famine of food that, that, that the body needs. Scripture warns us about spiritual famine. 
Listen to Amos 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the words of God. And the people shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, inquiring for and requiring it as one requires food, but shall not find it. What a terrible thing that would be to, to, to not have the word of God. So now we're going to look at the details of this failed move on behalf of Elimelech and the failed marriages as well. Again, verse 1 says, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So in looking at the disaster of this move to Moab, we're going to see what all was involved in the move. First, what was involved in the move, we see the disobedience involved in the move. God didn't tell him to go. Moving to Moab was an act of disobedience. The Israelites were to live in the land that God gave them. Palestine had been given to the Israelites by God. It was part of the covenant blessing that, that God had made with Israel through Abraham. And so for a person to leave the land was practically a denial of their faith. Joshua warned the Israelites. He warned Israel. In, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, he said, Come not among these nations, these that remain among you. And then in Joshua, uh, Joshua 23, 12, he said, And they were not to cleave to the remnant of these nations. You see, if the Israelites were not to live among the heathen in their own land, they were certainly not to leave the land and to live among the heathen in other countries. We are not to move in the world anywhere. We're not to move in, the world, uh, in with the world anywhere, no matter if it's good times or bad times. The next thing we see in, in Elimelech's, Elimelech's move is that we see the distrust he had and got in the move. You see, moving showed a lack of faith in God by Elimelech. It was saying that Elimelech didn't trust God to take care of him in the land, though there was a famine, where he was supposed to live. The psalmist said in chapter 40, uh, Psalm 40, verse 1 and 4, he said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry, and blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed, happy, is that man or woman that makes the Lord his trust. You see, God could have provided for him in Bethlehem, despite the famine. He could, he could have provided for Elimelech and his family anywhere else. Famine or no famine, under any condition. But you see, Elimelech looked at the famine through his eyes of flesh rather than through the eyes of faith. You see, the real test of our life, or I should say the real test of our faith, is when we're put under the stress of tough circumstances. When things look so dark and, 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 and hopeless, you see, it's easy to walk in faith when things are going well, when we can see where we're going, when we can see what's going on. But man, when it's so dark, we can't see what's going on, and I have no idea, God, what are you doing? That's the test of our faith. And, and, you know, and, and things can get really hairy when, when, we, when, we're, when we're tested. And, and when it gets rough, man, it's a lot harder to live by faith, to walk by faith. 
So in tough times, they show us what kind of faith that we have. God knows. It's not God learning what our faith is all about. He knows our faith. It's to show us what our faith is or isn't. You see, difficult times drive us to God, or they will drive us away from Him. And again, it depends on the character of our faith. With Elimelech, difficult times drove him away from God. And the difficult times showed that Elimelech lacked uh, had a lack of trusting God. He left the land of the covenant that he made with God and he moved to a heathen nation. David did the same thing in Samuel because he was tired of going to the, to the, the, the cha- being chased by Saul and he thought Saul sooner or later was going to kill him and he said, you know what, I'm going. To, he, he took off to Gath. He said, and that was where you know, he fought the enemy Philistine, Goliath. But he thought, going near, Saul will leave me alone. He'll stop chasing me, and I'm going to be okay. He and his family lived there for almost a year and a half out of the will of God. Elimelech's name means God is my king. But Elimelech sure wasn't living up to his name when he took it upon himself to move to Moab. Moving to Moab wasn't walking by faith, but by sight. He wasn't walking according to the commands of God, but according to the circumstances of the day. And even so, we're to be faithful to our calling whether the years are lean or they're plentiful. Those aren't to be the things that we depend upon on on if we're going to walk with God or not. And then we see the haste in the move. Man, he didn't mess around. He took off in a jiffy. Elimelech left Bethlehem in a hurry once the famine set in. And this is seen in the fact that the scripture says that he and his family went out full in verse 21. They left full. He didn't leave after the famine had left him with nothing. He wasn't waiting for that. But he left before he was left with nothing. So this only emphasizes the weakness of his faith. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Whoever believes will not act hastily. In other words, whoever believes never needs to be shaken. Matthew Henry said this, It is evidence of a disconnected, distrustful, unstable spirit to be weary of the place where God has set us and to be leaving it immediately whenever we meet with any uneasiness or inconvenience in it. Now others like Boaz stayed put at home and he survived well. But you see, Elimelech, he was was too materialistic to to risk any loss that he might experience in the will of God. That is by staying there in Bethlehem. And there's a lot of people like that in our churches today. Now, they're a hindrance to any progress in the church's ministry. People who are not willing to lose anything, you know, in order to be obedient to God, they eventually will lose. But you know what? As we'll see later, they lose all. Not just some things, they lose all. And this truth is stated by Jesus in Mark 8, 35, when he said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Now this, is, this, this could be applied to Elimelech, this particular verse that Jesus said. In other words, it's better to live in Bethlehem in a time of famine to live in Moab in a time of plenty. Then the next thing we see in, in, in Elimelech's failure in going to Moab, there's the defilement in the move that he made. 
Verse 1 says, he and his wife has, he and his wife and his two sons, they made the move. They all went to Moab. So Elimelech not only defiled himself by going to Moab, he also defiled his family. You see, that's what happens when you backslide. It doesn't just affect you. When you sin, you cause others to sin. And that's the way it was here with Elimelech. When he failed, when he, failed he caused his whole family to fail. Backsliders always take people down with them. And you know what? People will usually follow a backslider faster than they will follow an obedient person. So by taking his family to Moab, Elimelech abused his authority, again, as a leader of his home. He used his authority to influence others to sin. And great responsibility comes on all those who have authority. And one day, you'll have to answer to God for how you use your power and your influence. Position over people is given to you to lead others in the right way, to serve them, to help them. It's not given to you to build up your ego or to give you personal advantages or personal gain. And a lot of people use their high position over people. But the judgments are going to be great for those people who use their power to influence and encourage others to do wrong. The next failure we see in, in Elimelech's move is the distance in the move. Again, verse 1 says, A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. Now, Moab wasn't very far from Bethlehem. You could see Bethlehem, I'm sorry, you could see uh, uh, Moab from Bethlehem. And to get to Moab from Bethlehem, you had to travel about 20 to 30 miles, which really wasn't a long trip. So, it was a short distance. And it's a reminder to us about how sin operates. You know, when it would cause you to disobey... It often first encourages you to, to, to leave the right path just a little bit. You know, to think, you know, we sometimes measure sin by a lot or by a little. Oh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, fudge a little bit. It's not really a big deal. You know, it's not really going to cause any problems anywhere. And then the people who are critical of a small deviation, you know, for, uh, for the Christian to make that small deviation, oh, I don't want to do that, then right away they're criticized. Oh, come on, that, that really is not going to hurt you. It's not really going to cause any problems. And then they, they, they say you're legalistic, you're unkind, you're unloving, because, you know, you won't, you won't remove the boundaries. You won't go beyond the boundaries, not even a little bit. But here's the thing. Once sin gets you to take that first small step astray, then it encourages you to take another and another, to take more small steps away from God's will. And before you know it, guess what? You've strayed a long ways from, the, from God's path. Those who get far off of God's path, the right path, they started out just a step at a time. Just a little bit. Not going to hurt anything. But you know what? It makes it easier to take the next little one and easier for the next little one. And those steps add up. And they will lead you far from righteousness. The next failure in Elimelech's move was there were deterrents that should have stopped the move. First, there was a warning from Abraham. And Genesis chapter 12 tells us about Abraham leaving Canaan and going to Egypt during the famine. And it talks about the terrible price that Abraham paid for, not, for, for, not, for making such an unwise move. 
Because remember, in Egypt, that's where he picked up Hagar, the handmaiden, who caused him so many problems, which are still troubling the Jews today. I don't know if you've heard the news lately in, over in, East, in, in, the, you know, in, in Israel. But that was the cause, the beginning of that trouble that we are experiencing today, or that they're experiencing today. The warning from Abraham's experience provided a great deterrent, or should have, for Elimelech leaving the land in time of trouble. But you see, he ignored the warning from Abraham's experience. Jacob also left the land and went to Egypt during a famine, but that's a different story because God gave Jacob the green light to go to Egypt. The second deterrent was Boaz's wealth. In chapter 2-1, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And we'll see him you know, later on in our studies. So Elimelech didn't have to go to Moab to find help and relief from the famine because Bo he had a wealthy, uh, a wealthy relative. And like I say, we'll see about Boaz later on. He was the kind of character, Boaz was the kind of character that helped people right away. So this should have been another strong deterrent to, Mo, to, to Elimelech going to Moab. But Elimelech ignored this one too. He, he ignored this deterrent too. And there again, a lot of people are foolish like Elimelech. Because they go to the world to find help when they have a great Boaz in Christ. And the, and the word of God. The world's help. It might look good at times. But it's useless. Like Moab's help, which you know, couldn't help Elimelech from death. The next failure that we see in Elimelech's move to Moab, there were dangers in the move. Moving to Moab was dangerous because Moab's attitude and his actions towards Israel in the past for sure made a move to Moab dangerous both physically and spiritually. And there's a couple of things that made the move dangerous. One, because of Moab's unfriendly behavior towards Israel. Moab was the result of the incestuous sin of Lot. Remember when we just finished Lot? That incestuous relationship he had with his oldest daughter? He, she named that, that her son Moab. And this wicked, behavior, this wicked deed established the kind of people that the Moabites were. They weren't friendly toward godliness. So they weren't friendly to Israel when Israel traveled through Canaan. Remember Moab wouldn't let Israel travel through the land? They wouldn't help Israel. They hired the, the prophet of Balaam to curse Israel and, and some Moabite women, you know, to seduce many of the Israelites' men. Not only to corrupt their morals, but also to corrupt the worship, their worship of the living God. And as a result, 24,000 Israelites were slain because of what they did, because of their evil. So after Israel moved into the promised land, Moab oppressed the Israelites and caused caused them to serve Moab for 18 years. And because of the hostile behavior of Moab towards Israel, it was, a very dangerous, it was very dangerous to move to Moab to try to find relief from their trouble from the famine. Now, yeah, Moses was buried in Moab. But remember, he was buried there because of his disobedience. So, so even though Moses was buried in Moab, is, that's not a justification for them to move to the country of Moab. And even if they did, it wouldn't eliminate the danger. 
The second danger in the move to Moab was unholy belief. The Moabites were idolaters. And they seduced a number of Israelites into worshiping one of the Moabite idols. So with Israel associating with the Moabites, that was not going to help Elimelech and his family's faith in Jehovah God. So again, this is why it was a very dangerous thing to move there, spiritually speaking, for Elimelech to move into a corrupt religious area. And in the same way, it's spiritually dangerous for God's people today to attend an apostate church where the truth of God is denied and where error is, is okay or, or it's approved or it's, or it's honored. And then there was the length of the move that was dangerous. Look at verse 2 and verse 4. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Look at verse 4. Now they took wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. So their stay in Moab, it wasn't a short one. They were there for 10 years out of the will of God. How sad it is to be out of God's will for so long. And we'll see later the great cost of being out of God's will. But you see, that's the charm and the attraction of sin. You know, it, it, it appeals to people and it attracts them into thinking. It's only going to be for a little while. It's only going to be a little bit. It's only going to be for a little while when in reality, it will be and can be a long time. And the amazing thing about this stay was that it lasted even when they had lost so much. Elimelech died. But even in that, in that terrible thing, his family still did not return to Bethlehem. They stayed there until Elimelech's two sons died. Now, you would have think, you, you'd think that they would have learned and left when Elimelech died. But that's another thing that sin does. It not only charms you and deceives you, it blinds you. Sin blinds the people so that people will keep on sinning in spite of what it costs them. And then there was failure in the marriages. Another, um, again, failure that... that brought the, the devastation upon um, uh, Elimelech and his family. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. So again, the failure in their marriages by their two sons was again uh, of Elimelech, uh, the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi. Their sons failed in their marriages. Like the move to Moab was so wrong, so were their marriages to Moabites. The forbidding of marrying Moabite women is especially seen in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And both Ezra and Nehemiah dealt with the problem of intermarriage of God's people with the world. That included the Moabites and both condemned Again, Ezra and Nehemiah, they both condemned these marriages very strongly. That is, with, with people of the world. We still have that strong warning and admonition in Scripture today about intermarrying with the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
But just like Elimelech's sons, believers still often marry unbelievers anyway. And then they suffer for it, which is really sad. They suffer the sad and miserable consequences of being married to somebody that they're unequally yoked with. Because one wants to follow the Lord and then the other one wants to follow his own ways. They're pulling in two different directions. That's the meaning of unequally yoked. It's like having a, a, an oxen and a, and a donkey harnessed together to pull a plow. You see, the stronger one's going to pull in the direction they want to go and the other one's just going to end up following. And again, the meaning of being unequally yoked. One wants to go one way and one wants to go the other way. And so... Again, and another thing is that the failure of the marriages were prolonged. In other words, it just, they were think, it just kept going and going. No children were born to these unequally yoked relationships. The marriage of both Malon and Chilion, they, they, were, they were childless. And this is a, a good illustration of the fact that when we disobey God, and we walk according to the flesh and not according to faith, we're not going to have good fruit in our lives. Joining with the world, you know, it makes us, you know, sterile when it comes to spiritual fruit. We'll be fruitless. It might make us unpopular with the world, but it won't help us produce good fruit. I should say it will make us popular with the world. You know, but it's not going to help us to produce good fruit. There were three fatalities that climaxed the ruin of this family in verses 1 through 5. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, verse 3 says, and then both sons, Malon and Chilion, also died, verse 5 says. The very thing that is death, that was the very thing they were trying to avoid by staying in Bethlehem where the famine was. So this family from Bethlehem was trying to run away from their problem by going to Moab, that they experience anyway and in a much greater way. You see, when we forsake God's will for our own will in order to save something, we actually end up losing it. And now we're going to look at the cause and the consequences of these three deaths. Paul said in Romans 6, 23, what? The wages of sin is death. And the cause of these three deaths was clearly sin. These three deaths were judgment from God for leaving Israel and staying in Moab. In Elimelech's two sons, in their case, some think the meaning of their names, Malon means puny and Chilion means pining. Matthew Henry says they mean sickness and consumption, indicating that they were sickly, sickly men, sickly individuals, and that's why they died. But even if they were sickly, it still doesn't take away from the fact that sin was the cause of their death. And the text supports this conclusion. And, and so do a lot of Jewish, early Jewish writers. J. Vernon McGee says this, Jewish, Jewish writers from early times have contended that the, that the early deaths of Naomi's sons were divine judgments because of the unlawful marriages. If they were sickly, it was all the more reason for staying in Bethlehem where God wanted them to be. You know, it's bad enough to be outside the will of God when you're healthy, but being sickly only makes things worse. So, so moving to Moab, 
I mean, it, you know, it always looks so promising in the eyes of the flesh. Oh, I found a solution to our problem, so let's go do this. And again, like I said, it looks so promising. You know, and it did relieve their stresses for a while. But the move eventually turned out to be death to the three out of the four who made the trip. And that's the way sin is. It looks so promising. But sin does not give life. It takes life. Sin doesn't fill. It empties. And yet Elimelech's Moab philosophy, which was run away, hey, it's very popular today, even in the church, even among Christians. Run away. Don't, don't tough it out with the Lord. Don't trust in the Lord. And we see it as an example in the idea that when trouble comes, we need to go to Moab, the Moab psychologist and the Moab psychiatrist and get professional help. But you know that when we do that, when we go to the world for their help, no matter what kind of, it, it, it belittles our God. It dishonors the power of the word of God to help. And it brings spiritual death instead of life. Again, look at verse 5. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So the consequences of the deaths were very, very great, especially for Naomi, because she was a very prominent person in the story of Ruth. And here we see the consequences of the deaths. It caused her emptiness. Naomi, Elimelech's wife, was the only one of the four people from the Jewish family who survived their stay in Moab. But in surviving, she was alone. She was left alone because she didn't have a husband. And her sons, neither of them to look after her. Nobody to take care of her. And in those days, that was devastating. She had nothing. In Moab, she had nothing. She had no possessions, no family, no future expectations. Naomi is a picture of the great desolation and the devastation that comes from sin. Sin can and it will empty us of everything that's good. Remember, it bankrupted the prodigal son. And here it leaves Naomi desolate. And it can bankrupt any soul. And in the worst case, for all eternity. So in the verses following our text for this study, we're going to see Ruth leaving Moab. We're going to see her going back to Bethlehem. And she, because she had heard, according to verse 6, she had heard that there was bread in Bethlehem again. But leaving Moab was prompted by the news of bread in the land. Which strongly implies that it was also encouraged by the deaths of her family members as well. The deaths helped Naomi to think of going back to Bethlehem. It helped her to, to be receptive to the news there's bread in Bethlehem. And it freed her from the evil authority and influence of Elimelech and her two sons. And here's the thing. This often happens in the lives of God's people who are walking in disobedience. It seems like many times only when tragedy and sorrow strike and comes into their life that God can get their attention about getting back to the will of God. In closing, Matthew Henry said this, 
God takes away from us the comforts that we stay ourselves too much upon and solace ourselves too much in. Here in the land of sojourning, that we may think more of home in the other world and by faith and hope may hasten towards it. Earth is embittered to us that heaven may be endeared. Now, this isn't saying that all tragedy and sorrow is because of disobedience. But, you know, we can't deny either that many times tragedy and sorrow is because of disobedience. And when it is, it's to get the disobedient person to wake up to their sin and turn back to the right path where God wants us to be. So that's why we need to be diligent to walk in obedience to God's will and His way so that He won't have to inflict us with pain and suffering before we're willing to walk in His will and get back on His path. Father, once again, we thank You for Your wonderful Word, God. Again, we thank You for, Father, for this, this text. And again, so much in, in just these four verses, Lord. And Father, we just, we look to you. And Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. And that, Father, that there would be no reason, no matter how great or difficult, God, that would entice us, encourage us to leave the right path that you've set us on, God. Not for any amount of bread, not for any amount of relief, but God, to keep our eyes stayed upon you. Father, that you would continue to build our faith and that we would keep our feet from evil. And Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Wednesday. And the title is The Sword of God. And you guys have a blessed week. God bless you.